You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you all so much for joining me for this week's episode, episode 35, Listening to Your Body's Wisdom. Now, this is going to be the second to last podcast episode for this season. We've had a really rich first season with a lot of really powerful guests, a lot of really meaningful conversations. And so we are going to take a bit of a break before we return for the second season. So stay tuned for our last episode coming up in a few weeks. Before I launch into introducing today's guest, I just wanted to take a moment to highlight some resources relevant to our topic for today. The first is the free four-part video series focused on building resilience, and it integrates science-backed tools from psychology as well as a variety of other wisdom traditions. And in this series, I focus on ways to cultivate resilience through body-based awareness, managing your stress response, clarifying values, and bolstering self-compassion, all of which have a somatic component and require an attunement to the body and really listening to and responding to the wisdom in the body. So that's a really valuable resource if you want to take the conversation today a step further and check out that resource. And you can find a link to that resource in the episode notes as well as my bio on Instagram along with the other resources I'll mention today. The second resource which may be of interest to you is a free workbook called Signs of Perfectionism, a Guided Self-Assessment. And the focus of this workbook is on identifying any patterns or tendencies in your life that veer towards perfectionism. And for many people, we have certain relationships with our bodies that include perfectionistic ideals or standards that can really get in the way of our relationship with our body and can almost disconnect us from our bodies or dissociate from our bodies, objectify our bodies in a way that interferes with really benefiting from wisdom in the body. And for many of us, those perfectionistic tendencies require us to rebuild a sense of trust in our bodies, uh, an ability to feel a sense of safety in our bodies. And so this workbook is intended to help you explore ways in which perfectionistic tendencies might be keeping you stuck when it comes to your body and your relationship to physical health, but also in a variety of other domains in your life. The final resource I wanted to lift up is the holistic coaching program. And so if the holistic approach in the podcast today or other episodes is really resonating with you and you're wanting to learn a bit more about how this kind of approach might help you with certain challenges in your life through this coaching modality, I definitely encourage you to read more on my website, melissafoynes.com, or even reach out to talk further and schedule a free consultation. There is a wait list for this year, but certainly would love to speak with anyone who might be interested in being added to that waitlist. And the coaching program draws from a variety of different kinds of modalities like evidence-based psychology, depth psychology, yoga and yoga psychology, mindfulness, meditation, Ayurveda, all with the intention of creating a personalized plan that can help you implement change in specific ways and specific domains of your life. 
I absolutely love integrating all of these modalities. I think they have such power and synergy when they are used together. And I love working with people to really personalize these tools and really translate these wisdom traditions in ways that really work for them and that are sustainable within the realities of their lives. So I love talking to anyone who's interested about what it means to approach life challenges and stressors in a holistic way and what that means in terms of coaching in particular. So please do reach out if you're interested. I am so delighted to introduce our guest for today, Becca Clegg. And I have been following Becca's work for quite some time and find her to be such an inspiration. I love the enthusiasm and passion with which she approaches her work. I love her commitment to offering accessible free resources to the community because that is a passion that I also share and I love the humble way in which she speaks about her own humanity, her own struggles, her own journey in order to help others. So, so much to say about what I love about Becca and so many reasons that I'm so excited to have the opportunity to speak with her on the podcast today. If you are not familiar with Becca, she is an author, psychotherapist, embodiment teacher, consultant, and speaker. And she has worked for over 15 years as a therapist. And she currently has a private practice in Atlanta, Georgia, that specializes in the treatment of women's issues. Among many of her passions, one is working with women. And in her work, she really strives to provide a supportive place for her clients and community so that they can explore and heal their relationship with food, self-image, embodiment, spirituality, and personal development. And her definition of spirituality I love, and she frames spirituality as a connection to that which goes deeper than the physical. Welcome, Becca. I am so honored and delighted to have you here today. So thank you again so much for carving out the time to join us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. I always love doing these interviews. So it's just an honor to connect. Oh, so I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about embodiment, because I know this is one of the key pillars of your work. And I think the word embodiment is becoming more and more prominent, thankfully, in our vocabulary, in, in our conversations with each other. And I thought it could be helpful for listeners to hear a bit about what embodiment means to you, as well as personal signs of disembodiment. So how do you personally know when you are not living in an embodied way? Yeah. I'd love to talk about that. Um, and what's interesting about my journey with embodiment and my own experience is I'm very forward in saying, I think I've spent much of my life not embodied. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really only in my own shift within my career uh, that I began to recognize that. So for those of you that don't know, I have been a psychotherapist for about 15 years. Um, And of course, all of that work is talk therapy, which is extremely valuable. You'll never hear me say anything bad about talk therapy. It's just that I really was gravitating towards that because I realize now in hindsight, I had spent most of my life in my head. very cognitive, very intellectual, always had to sort of analyze and understand everything, find the meaning of things, and had no idea that I was disembodied in any way, shape, or form, because honestly, I think I lived very in keeping with what my culture taught me to do and how to function. So when I found what I'm going to refer to as somatic work or somatic psychotherapy, which is just working with the body to help affect the mind. In other words, they call it bottom up work. Um, 
it was as though I was learning a new language. It completely changed everything for me. And I would say that was about five years ago, um, give or take. And I, in typical fashion, I, I tend to be um, rather all or nothing at, at times. I jumped into the deep end. I was like, this is game changing. And I think at the time for me in my own life and my professional life, I had this deep sense of needing more that I, I understood on some cellular level that there was only so much I could analyze or talk about. Um, and so I began to take trainings, lots of them. Um, again, my mind wants to know, my mind is very, very dominant. Um, <laughs> but as I did so, I was really kind of sort of hit with this realization that I couldn't know my way into this work. I couldn't mm -hmm. think my way through this work. Um, and it was humbling and it has been, it has brought me to my knees in a lot of ways because the old way of functioning, which for me again, is to understand something to um, almost there's, there's an element of control when we think our way through things. And as opposed to um, receiving, which is much more embodied way of being. Um, and again, that's that piece that I think for me has been so humbling is this recognition that there's this immense amount of wisdom and knowledge and power, but that it's not really about my will. It's more about um, being with what I'm experiencing in the moment and being with the signals and the sort of signs that come up through my body. Um, and even as I say this, I'm aware that some of the audience members might be thinking, what is she talking about? Because this, when you're talking about embodiment and somatic um, wisdom, it really is a paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to put it into terms that um, for me, going back to your original question, what does embodiment mean for me? It means recognizing that the thoughts I think and my um, cognitive analytic understanding of things is only one portion of a bigger whole, a bigger mm. truth. Mm -hmm. um, it means for me that I have to check in with the parts below the neck. And that's a very literal practice for me. I still feel in many ways like I'm a newbie to this mm -hmm. and I do teach it, but I teach it because I have a platform and I teach it because I have a voice that you can't shut me up whether you wanted to or not. But I definitely don't teach it from any type of um, guru status. I teach it from, hey, I'm in there with you. I'm learning this stuff with you. Um, and, and every single day I have to drop in and I have to literally focus on what am I noticing? What are the sensations in the body? What does, and then, and then I lean into that. I lean into the tightness. I lean into the tension. I lean into the pain. And, and sometimes it's a pleasant feeling. Um, so I don't mean to imply it's all uh, discomfort, but you know, whatever it is that I'm experiencing, I, I learn to ask it questions. I learn to want to know more about it. I create this receptive space where I'm curious. And this again is part of the teaching of somatic work, but it's the idea that everything that's happening is intelligent and it's intentional. And it, if you really listen to your body, it has so much to tell you. I am a true believer that our body is our subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. um, as psychology has sort of termed it. Um, mm -hmm. And in doing these practices and in being more embodied, I have come to understand myself so much more than I had ever understood as a result of trying to, you know, analyze it and think. And, and, and again, very, very valuable. I'm not, I'm not putting the cognitive down at all. It's just without the somatic or the embodied piece, it's half of a whole. Um, you're only getting half of the sort of understanding. Uh, and to just honor your question, I think for me, when I'm disembodied, uh, which is a lot of the time, even today, like I, it's, it's a lot of the time, I am, my, my personal tells are that I am frenzied. I am, I feel like I am um, keeping up with the pace society is asking me to keep. So, 
And I know this because it doesn't feel good. It's such a basic response, but it truly does not feel right. I feel like I'm running on a treadmill at a speed that is about two notches higher than what my body to, to perform. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to that end, that feeling, it's a very, it's a feeling inside my body um, has become a tell for me. Um, and, and I feel it more often than I care to admit, but <laughs> it, it's sort of, I've learned that it's, it's a calling back into, okay, what's happening in my body? What am I aware of? And even in just doing the embodied practice, which anybody could do, any, anybody on this, listening to this can do this, it slows me down enough to recognize I have different choices. Mm-hmm. So it's a very powerful, simple, but not necessarily easy um, practice that has become, uh, I would say, critical to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I can guarantee you, had I not found more embodied work and more embodied practices, I would be, if not already burnt to a crisp, burnt out, I would be on my way to some sort of um, massive, you know, whether it would be an illness or some sort of a, you know, midlife crisis or whatever it was. But um, because I, I'm a firm believer that our world asks us to function in a way that the human body was not built to, to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I really appreciate the richness and everything that you shared really, truly. And I wanted to ask you this question to start off because I do think that the experience of embodiment and disembodiment at times can be hard to put into words because like you're saying, it's about maybe not being so word focused and more leaning into the felt sense of things. And for me personally, as someone who also has lived a lot of my life in a more cerebral space, Mm -hmm. for me in an ongoing way on a daily basis, moment to moment, it's been very helpful to have a sense of almost like warning signs of disembodiment. How, how How does disembodiment show up for me personally. So that can be a tool to try to get me back on track. And also what is the quality of embodiment feel like? What, what, what does that mean too? So I think it can be a very personalized process. Yeah. And, and just that question, what does embodiment feel like? Mm-hmm. That to me is embodiment work. It's not what do we think it is? What's the definition? <laughs> how do we understand embodiment? But what does it feel like in my system, when I'm embodied as opposed to when I'm not. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because um, one of the trainings that I'm actually currently uh, I, in it, I'm probably, I think about January, I'll be certified, is in a method called transformative touch, which involves touch and talk. So it's very outside of the sort of scope of normal psychotherapy. It's much more of a somatic method. And in order to practice this, we our first sort of real focus is on getting into our, what they refer to as our own base, but it's really being grounded in our own body so that we can't even go into a session without first finding our own ground and our own base. And that was such a wake up call for me. It's Mm -hmm. like, wait, what, you know, like, what does that even mean? Um, And, you know, the, for those of you listening, there are there are certainly techniques you can use. I mean, you could you could literally Google grounding techniques and there's a myriad of really beautiful things out there. Um, and, you know, I think part of it is also understanding that whatever the technique is, you're gonna know something is happening because your system is gonna give you feedback from that interoceptive, you know, which inter- interoception or interception is this, it's a signal that comes from inside your body. Um, at the risk of being crude, it's just like, how do you know you have to use the restroom? Mm-hmm. Nobody can tell you that. It's coming from inside of you. And mm-hmm. so it's that same sense of like, I know I'm grounded when I feel this shift. And it's very hard to put that into words. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really difficult for me to tell you like, what's the shift? It's like, well, it's like a density kind of, it's like a gravity, you know, I could try, but mm-hmm. It's just how, how do you describe the feeling like, you know, you have to use the restroom? I mean, you, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we can try to put words in it, but it's, it's very personal. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's why I think having conversations about and teaching embodiment can be 
its own learning curve because we're trying to take uh, something that doesn't have words and, and put words to it. Absolutely. And it, as you're talking, it brings to mind for me experiencing emotions in an embodied way. And as I know we both appreciate the power and benefits of talk therapy and language. And many people may have heard this phrase, name it to tame it. I think sometimes there is something powerful about putting a label to your emotional experience. And yet there's also a way in which staying at the language level of describing emotion can disconnect us from the felt sense of that emotion. And sometimes what we feel is hard to put into words. And sometimes trying to put it into words disembodies us. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to even think about how our framework for many of us in terms of even experiencing and expressing emotion is often one that isn't always fully embodied. Yeah, that's so, I mean, I love what you're saying. And what's really great about the somatic practices that I'm learning um, and, and will always be learning for the rest of my life is I think there's this real emphasis on autonomy and, mm -hmm. and sort of sovereignty of the human being as non-pathologized. Mm -hmm. So when we try to like, I like name it to tame it. I love that. And what if there was a way to name or use, you know, the English or whatever language you speak, but your, your native tongue to name something, but that it didn't have to be the correct name. So in mm -hmm. other words, you weren't mm -hmm. seeking out the term anxiety or the term, you know, depression or whatever um, the field of psychology has named it. But, you know, when I'll be doing work with people, sometimes they name it that um, fuzzy and we'll, we'll ask questions, right? We'll be like, what's the quality? What are the colors? If you could draw it, what would it look like? So that we'll end up having this like the fuzzy ice cube that sits on my, you know, um, like sternum, which mm. might, might be their way of describing like a cold feeling, but, you know, and then next thing you know, they've named it, but it's not some clinical mm. pathologized name as much as it's, they've, they've sort of anthropomorphized an emotion in a way that brings it into life. And from that place, you know, we can use more talk therapy methods, like um, we could do parts work with it, or we could, you know, but it's this really, I don't know, it's, it's personal, it's, it's theirs. Um, and we always trust that whatever they're selling, whatever, they, whatever you think it is, is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no expert outside of you. And I really love how that empowers the client. I love that example of the fuzzy ice uh -huh. cube. I really do. And I, I, it also brings up for me how so often our associations with certain emotions can exacerbate the emotion. Again, not that the goal is for the emotion to, to be minimized necessarily, but that we think that you know anger is bad or I'm not going to be as connected socially if I'm anxious. So oftentimes, again, there is power often in having these labels. And yet sometimes when we feel as though we need to constrict ourselves into certain predetermined labels, it also carries with it the cultural connotation and messaging around that emotion, which is so laden. Whereas if it's the fuzzy ice cube, that's such a personalized, I mean, maybe other people have heard about fuzzy ice cubes, right? But as no. far as I know, I don't have a lot of emotional charge around that. I don't have a lot of right. historical association or cultural narratives. So it to me, it also seems like a way to foster a non-judgmental, compassionate, as you said, non-pathologizing, non-clinical mm -hmm. framework for feeling into what you feel. And to me, that is the gift that I have received in leaving what I would describe as more of a um, Western culture, medical model, pathological orientation towards treating mental health, all of this language mm -hmm. I would put in that category mm -hmm. and moving more towards um, a, a, just a more holistic human approach to the human condition, which mm. again, we're talking about the same thing, but I just feel as though the more I know, the more I realize how little I've known. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, a, it's a humbling experience. It really is. Um, you know, I'm not going to get on my soapbox, but I will mention as 
I constantly am, am recognizing the limitations of the thought patterns that I have, um, which it, I think that's probably happening to many of us. But even over the last few years, and it really truly was for me just the last few years that I recognized how influenced by the patriarchy, the psychology is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know how that that skipped my mind when like almost every single person I read about was like, you know, like <laughs> a white male, like how did I not notice that? But you know, no, again, nothing wrong with them. They're still great. I love Adler. I love, I don't know that I love Freud, but Freud's got some good stuff. I, I adore um, Yalom and all, all these people are wonderful. I'm not, I'm not saying anything about them, but it's this sort of feeling of like, my God, you know, I've sort of taken for so much of my career, I took this as, the Bible, like, well, this is mm -hmm. what they said it was. So it's this, it's this. And it's really not, you know, mm -hmm. that's one person's way of looking at it and it's helpful, but I've really just opened up to, my God, there's so many other approaches and so many other really fantastic ways of looking at the human condition. And really at the end of the day, what resonates with the client, what resonates with you. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll talk about myself, not even the client, but what resonates with me is what's going to heal me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, some of my deepest work has been with working with people who um, uh, sort of refer to themselves as, as shamans or as medicine people or um, psychics even, you know, like, and yeah, I value psychology, but it's one piece mm -hmm. of, the, of the puzzle. So um, this somatic work has really just gotten me out of a box and mm. I'm forever grateful for it. I love that. And I so appreciate your willingness to share about your personal journey and mm -hmm. the humility that I think comes from gaining more wisdom, right? The more we know, the more we realize how little we know, right? I, I know. So. <laughs> I know. Too bad. The only, the only bad downside of current, uh, well, that's not the only downside, but um, I, it's funny because I have a lot of, I, I love to write. And so I was like, I look back at things I wrote just like five years ago and I'm like, I don't think I'd write any of that anymore. It's really interesting, you know? So it's like, oh, well, oh, well. You have to have humility and, and compassion and kindness for what it's like to be a human who's always growing and learning. So true, so true. Yeah. And I'm also thinking too about some of the challenges that we face to embodiment. So, I mean, of course there are so many examples, but a few that, that came to mind for me while you were talking were in the past, not having associated the body as a place of safety. So if we've had some kind of physical or sexual trauma, sometimes it can feel very scary to, to be more in the body, or perhaps we don't like our bodies. We've been taught to think that our bodies are, well, to judge our bodies, to think that they're not good enough. Negative messages about how we look have been internalized or, or maybe to some extent we've disconnected from the body and the signals from the body, the communication of the body as a way to survive or cope with certain life stressor, stressors, which I think sometimes can be adaptive. If you're in a situation where your needs aren't getting met, probably not super helpful to be all that aware of what your body is communicating, right? Yeah. So I'm wondering when you are working with people who have a complicated relationship to their body for whatever reason or certain associations or who legitimately find being more embodied at first, unfamiliar, unpleasant, uncomfortable, Again, I'm not presuming that's the case yeah. for people, but for people for whom that is true, what guidance do you offer? I mean, I know we could spend five episodes on no, this. You're good. You're good. So, it's a great question and it's an important question. And your presumption's not wrong. Um, so part of my background is that I happen to be an eating disorder specialist. So a lot of my practice is eating disorder work just by virtue of that. And as a result, a lot of people who I work with are not, um, they're not embodied and, and the body is sort of understood as an enemy, so to speak, because mm -hmm. of the nature of, of eating disorders. So absolutely having somebody just, even what I described to you about my practice, I would never 
have somebody start there. Mm -hmm. um, and when I said the audience can do it, you can, it doesn't mean you have to. And it mm -hmm. certainly doesn't mean anytime I teach somatic work or I do any sort of uh, workshops, or, and I probably should go ahead and say this, is never, ever, ever do anything that your body tells you is wrong. And your body will tell you by giving you a signal uh, or it might override and just shut down. Um, but honor that, you know, because you don't want to be overriding your body's signals. Um, so the, the sort of short answer to your question is you go very slowly and you do so in a way where you resource the individual. Um, and what resourcing is a term that they use a lot, I'm sure you, in trauma work, but it's helping them first to understand how they feel safety. So it isn't how they know safety, but it's how they feel safety. Mm. And that is going to require a little bit of a body bit, but not necessarily. Um, it might be that I feel safe when I'm sort of with the safety people in my life and being able to identify those. Maybe it's a place, maybe it's sort of, you know, I feel safe in like my office. I feel safe in my home. Um, I feel safe in nature. We can resource I mean, sky's the limit with resourcing. It's again, a very personal experience, but the act of working with somebody to really begin to categorize this is these are the things that bring a felt sense of safety to you. Um, you know, in essence, they help regulate your nervous system. Mm -hmm. And it isn't about not having a reaction to your point. People are going to have reactions. Part of being in your body is listening to those reactions, recognizing the dysregulation, understanding what that feels like so that we can also understand what we need um, in order to, you know, again, regulation is not always the goal, but in order to eventually complete whatever cycle of stress that we're in. Um, and, and that's a, another podcast unto itself. But, <laughs> you know, I think the, the key is never to push you into anything. The key is to offer and invite you into your ability, your capacity to experience yourself. Mm -hmm. And if it takes the rest of your life, so be it. You know, I kind of have this internal thing with myself. It's like, you're going to be on the planet for however long you're going to be on it. Do you want to try or not try? You know, mm -hmm. and it's this idea mm -hmm. of like, there is no timeline on this. Um, I think that that's a very simplistic response to your question, but um, just know that whatever level of embodiment, even if it's just being able to recognize how you know you have a pinky finger, as, as silly as that sounds, a coach of mine used to, um, she used to play with the metaphor, uh, which she still does, I'm sure, um, the Harry Potter invisibility cloak. And um, if those of you who don't know Harry Potter, it's just imagine a cloak you put over yourself and it makes you invisible. <laughs> but she'd always say, how do you know you have feet? How do you know if you had that on? How would you know you had a pinky finger? Mm -hmm. And it's just really interesting because I mean, you could get and get something like the pinky nail or something very benign to the individual that isn't connected with all of the negative thoughts or feelings or perhaps some of those um, traumatic experiences. Maybe it's hair even like a, a very like extreme extension of body. But to just begin to make that connection is powerful. And then you know, take as much time as the person needs. I really appreciate that emphasis on really trusting your own inner wisdom about the pace at which you might approach this work, the importance of autonomy and choice, and and really beginning with that felt sense of state of safety as the foundation. And like you said, not not from this perspective or lens of identifying what you think safety is or words around safety, but more what is that felt sense of safety in your body? And for many people who haven't felt safe in their bodies, that may be a large chunk of the work. And it's mm -hmm. not lesser than to be at that phase, mm -hmm. like you're saying, no. it's, it's all about this is wherever you are is where you are. And that's where you need to be. <laughs> so I, I think it's, also, for me too, as I'm my interpretation in terms of a lot of what you're saying or how I'm digesting it is that part of the embodiment work and philosophy is also about integrating our own 
inner kindness and self-compassion about what, what we're doing. So there's not this hierarchy of most embodied, right? It's, it's, it's really such, it needs to be such a personal endeavor. And that word hierarchy, it's, it's a great word because it's, to me, that is such a, um, that's such an important word. It emphasizes the way our culture has been structured. And, and I will speak to the fact that, you know, even in my own work in therapy early years, I think I had this hierarchical sense of how things were supposed to go or linear in that the goal was to get me or whomever towards happiness, which, you know, mm-hmm. feeling good. Um, and don't get me wrong. Like, of course, that's what I want. I, I have, if you give me my preferences and you hand me like feeling terrible or feeling good, I'm going to choose good every time. <laughs> that said, this work is so nonlinear because it isn't about getting anywhere. There's no end game. Mm-hmm. And so as opposed to like the line where you have like point A, point B, point C, point D, it's more of a circle, right? Where like you've got these mixed points on the circle. But if if I put a bunch of plot points on a circle and I said, okay, pick, pick the best one, pick, pick the one that's, you know, achieved the most. It's like, they're just all these points on a circle Mm -hmm. and it gives you access to the wholeness of who you are. My last embodied training, um, we have to go for like a week at a time. And I was just going through a lot. Um, and I swear to you, I was so, it was really interesting because being in my body was so hard and I was so messy I mean I must have cried through most of the training and I'm like I had this little part that's used to like perfectionism and judgment it's like oh my god you're such a mess but it's this other like beautiful part that's like and I'm gonna allow for this because this is part of the human expression Mm -hmm. and that this is where you are and being in your body right now means that you're experiencing lots of overwhelm lots of um, lots of grief and just various things. So if you're going to be there, this is what it's going to feel like. And I won't say that like the part of me that is indoctrinated to all the things, you know, from my early life and sort of these cultural messages <laughs> struggled through the whole training, but the other part was so happy to have a place mm-hmm. to just be, mm-hmm. just be. Um, and in doing so, I really believe like I was able to move through some of those emotional experiences in a way that I don't think I would have been if I'd have been trying to make myself be happy. So mm-hmm. um, if that gives you any more idea of like, it's it's such a hard thing to even like tell a person when a client's like, well, what is this embodied work? I'm like, I am having a hard time even explaining it to you, but um, <laughs> boy, if you could just trust the process because it's powerful. And there are those out there that do it much better than I, but um, it's just, we... We have been taught that our body is shameful. We have been taught that our bodies are sort of not part of what makes us valuable. And um, that could not be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. And I I actually believe that part of that teaching was um, by design, no better way to oppress people than cut them off from the things that truly inform them and make them powerful. Mm -hmm. It's interesting thinking about how it's almost like the goal is to not have a goal. Like if if we have in mind this point, this destination that we're trying to arrive at, it can interfere with this process of learning embodiment. And that came to mind for me as you were talking about this, this circle, how it's, it's all part equitably of this same process. It it reminds me too a little bit about how we sometimes think about sex. And when sex is more goal oriented, we think, oh, orgasm, that's the ideal. That's the end goal. Whereas if we have more of a different than what we're talking about right now, but more of a pleasure orientation Mm -hmm. where different kinds of expression can be legitimate and valuable parts of our sexual experience, sexual expression, et cetera, it's just a different mindset it's a different way of approaching the the process which i imagine also in the context of sex allows us to be more embodied as well if we're not attaching to a certain outcome or goal and and striving for that yeah and the irony is in terms of goal orientation i think a lot of times so so let's say the goal is 
I want to feel pleasure. That, mm-hmm. That's the goal. Let's make this person feel better. Let's make them feel better. In an attempt to willfully do that or to um, sort of strong arm our way into doing that, oftentimes what we bypass is the reception of the information that if we could be in a less dominant willful place and more in a receptive place Mm -hmm. it ends up giving us the information we need in order to understand what changes our life is asking us to make or you know whatever it is in the case of just pleasure like maybe it's where what parts of our body want attention or you know whatever the analogy but um that ends up getting us to the same place anyway Mm -hmm. so you know i think when i look at our culture especially as of late it's so um and I use the terms masculine and feminine energy, but it's not referential to gender. It could be yin or yang. It, it, it's the idea that we have these sort of energies. One is receptive and one is sort of active. And we're so culturally dominated by the masculine active energy that we just keep striving for more and more and more without asking the question or sitting time in the receptive space of saying, but for why? And and to what end? Mm -hmm. And I think if we would start listening and doing less and being more, we would hear what we really need, which isn't Mm. more, you know, what the earth needs, what our people need, what all of the things, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, but, but we're so caught up in the doing and the, the let's make more, let's make more happiness, whatever the hell that, you know, that looks like on a consumer level that we have like lost the wisdom and that's where embodiment comes in to me embodiment is that yin that being that feminine energy it's a space where when we're just in our bodies checking in all of a sudden in that receptive listening space we get such amazing insight. It then can inform the masculine yang doing energy as to what needs to happen next. Mm-hmm. So we're all trying for the same thing. It's just a more complete way. And, mm-hmm. and, a, and quite frankly, a more, um, much more informed way. Um, because otherwise I think we just, we end up, you know, I don't know, lost a bit like we are today in our world. Right. Yeah. Which can create all sorts of problems. All sorts of problems. Yeah. And we come by it honestly. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've got some stuff to change but it's it's interesting to me how like what can you do personally i think the more you can get in touch with your body Mm -hmm. and and trust that it has an intelligence and a wisdom about what you need and about what would benefit you and then therefore it will benefit the system you're in the tiny system your family the bigger Mm -hmm. systems of you know your 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 people and your groups and but that's how i think we all help i mean Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong i think we can be more than embodied, but being embodied would certainly help the whole. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate everything you said, but honing in a little bit just on the last bit, I, in my own self, find it really helpful when I'm experiencing intense emotions to ask myself what I need, which again, it sounds so simple yet not easy. But for me, it's actually really profound because it takes me out of this mindset of how do, how do I bring this emotion down or how do I get rid of this, this really uncomfortable experience and brings me more towards this idea of honoring the wisdom of the body and really listening to what is being signaled and looking for the needs that are underlying those emotions, those felt sensations in the body in a way that ultimately is more helpful because then I'm able to make decisions about what next step would be most supportive in a very different way. If you relate to something as a problem to be solved, it's a different kind of energy than than what do I need. Mm -hmm. That's a really, really valid uh, distinguish, like it, it, you know, it may seem like we're splitting hairs, but to fix something versus to resource it mm-hmm. are two different things. Mm-hmm. And I think we have been trying to fix ourselves. Um, and, and honestly, I think in doing so, we're oftentimes just putting band-aids on top of things that actually need tending to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and, 
and I have done it too. Like we all come by this honestly. So if you see yourself in this, as you're listening, um, as you said, just maybe switch and, and say, what do I need instead of how am I going to fix this? Um, mm-hmm. It's such a powerful nuance. I love mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Becca, I want to ask you a little bit about transformative touch mm-hmm. because something that I've seen quite a bit is people who maybe grew up in family systems where there, there wasn't a lot of touch or physical touch wasn't a part of how love was expressed. And so as older beings, adults, really have a hard time discerning, am I someone who just doesn't like to be touched, which is valid. Some of us are very sensitive in a sensory kind of way and safety isn't necessarily something we experience through physical touch, either self-touch or touch by others. Or is this something that I've been conditioned to to not want or have been taught to disconnect from because they might say, I don't feel like I want to hug someone and I will hug someone, but I don't really like it. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily feel good in, mm-hmm. in the way that I imagine it quote unquote should. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you've encountered this in some of your work with touch and, and how you've helped people navigate some of these questions. Absolutely. Yeah, um, and and I think it's important to note here that when we are sensory beings, you know, we have it, way more than five senses, in my opinion. But we we have those established five, right? You know, and it's like um, important to acknowledge that we are on a spectrum with that, and we all are. Not, you know, I know there's this term like, oh, that person might be on a spectrum. Like we're really all every single human is on this spectrum. And some people are going to have sensitivity levels that are different from others. So it's really, it goes back to, if you don't like the way something feels, honor that, regardless of the reason. Um, mm-hmm. Now your question about, is this nature or nurture? Great question. Um, and I do think for many of us, we've learned to associate touch with shame. For many of us, because our attachment figures were not safe. Um, touch isn't safe and Mm -hmm. that has been the lesson that we've learned so you know whether regardless of how you've come by it honoring that you definitely want to speak up um and always have that boundary i will say however sort of and not but (laughs) touch innately is one of the first ways in which we communicate you know we're pre-verbal in that we don't even have the frontal lobe that can understand language for like, I, I'm at two, two and a half, three years. I forget when kids start learning, but um, a long time. We're on this, we're sentient beings on the planet for a very long time without language. And touch is one of the ways in which we communicate. And, you know, we, if you've ever heard of failure to thrive, um, a syndrome with children who don't get touch, our nervous systems really are affected by touch. And there's a lot of actual science that would say that like we need physical touch in order to thrive, especially in that early stage of life. Um, so when people say, I don't like touch, my tendency is to wonder what has informed that truth for them. Um, and again, it could be something innate, like a sensory sensitivity, but, um, so I, I would never override that and say, oh, no, you do, you need it or anything like that. But one trying to work with them to see, is there a way in which there's a touch that could feel safe or mm-hmm. might feel safe or what does feel supportive? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm still very much on my journey of learning this work as well. Um, but as I've been doing it, one of the things that we do when we're, we're just sort of making contact with people at different parts of, of the body um, the question is always, how does that feel? Do you need more pressure? Do you need less pressure? We always say ahead of time, if anything ever doesn't feel right, um, either to verbalize that or we acknowledge if you can't verbalize it, to put your hand up or to hold it, because sometimes people, they aren't able to verbalize if they are in a um, certain state of mm-hmm. arousal. And so it's really important that the person feel that they have the autonomy to set that boundary. Um, and and part of this work is helping people understand what do they want 
with regards to touch and how does it feel? So there's never this presumption that like, oh, I'm going to come in and this is going to feel lovely. And I'm going to, you know, regulate your nervous system. Although I would love for all of that to be true um, because our histories inform where we are in the present moment and everybody's coming in with a different history. So the touch work though is, it's interesting because if you take your hand right now and you try to feel it, so just kind of hold it up if you're not driving and, and try to feel <laughs> your hand. And now take your hand and press it hard, like on your leg or on your forearm or on another part. If there's pressure on your hand, you're more aware of your hand just by mm -hmm. having pressure. Mm -hmm. And so when something else comes into contact with your being, it creates a heightened awareness of that part of your being. So that's another piece of the touch is like, I can say drop into your shoulder, but if I'm here at your shoulder and I'm just making contact with your shoulder, there's, and that's part of co-regulation, right? That's part of this, like, why <laughs> we, we are, we are not beings that exist um, in vacuums. There is this awareness that the, the heat in my hand connecting with your shoulder will bring you into a heightened state of awareness in your shoulder. Um, and a myriad of other things that touch does. Mm. But um, so these are these subtle things that allowing touch really brings people, um, their mindfulness, their experience with their body is, is altered in a way that we can't do just verbally. So mm -hmm. um, I think I've answered your question in 18 different ways. But I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. You did. You absolutely did. I, I know we're nearing the end of our time, but I would love to ask you one more question mm -hmm. because I know that a passion of yours is also related to vagal toning and we are kindred spirits in this way. And for those of you who haven't seen Becca's vagal toning Tuesdays on Instagram, I definitely encourage you to check those out because she has some very creative and bite-sized ways of uh -huh. practicing vagal toning, which I just love and adore that resource. Oh. So thank you, Becca, for yeah. all the work you put into that. For folks who are not familiar with vagal toning, again, this could be another 15-hour episode. Right. Could you give us a Cliff Notes yes. version description of what vagal toning is and maybe even share a few of your favorite vagal sure. toning practices? Sure. Let me think cliff notes. I am a verbose person. Well, it doesn't um, have to be, and me too. So it doesn't have to be good. super you're cliff good, notes. You're but. good. Um, so for the sake of brevity, you have a vagus nerve that it's, it is the 10th cranial nerve. It's called the wanderer because it really is from the sort of base of the brain all the way down. It comes down sort of through the throat, the back of the throat, but it wanders all the way down into the groin. And, and what I want you to know about your vagus nerve is think of it like the hub for nervous system regulation. Nervous system regulation, think about that as if you want to try to feel more at peace in your body and not feel that fight, flight, or freeze feeling in the body, which oftentimes we associate with anxiety and a myriad of um, what we might deem negative emotions, although they're not negative. So what do I want you to take away from this is you have this, this vagus nerve in your body and you have ways where you can tone it and toning all of this is such um, sort of surface level understanding, but think about that as the more tone your vagus nerve has, the more resilient you will be in the face of stress. So you'll be able to find regulation again in your own system, be feel better in your body after you feel stressed out. And so what's really cool and why I do these vagal toning Tuesdays, it's because I want people to understand that they already have so many ways in which they can help themselves. Mm -hmm. And they're very simplistic. And what's really cool is just look at a little kid to understand how to tone how to increase vagal tone. You're using um, a lot of things that kids naturally want to use and we tend to tame them out of it. Uh, movement, sound, um, and I tell you what, you can, you can Google ex exercises for vagal toning, but I'm gonna give you some of my favorites. When you gargle or chant, you're actually stimulating the vocal cords, which then actually stimulate the vagus nerve itself because it sits in the back of the vocal cords. So um, when you're in the shower in the morning, if you just take some water into your mouth, throw your head back and gargle, 
um, that gargling, that stimulation will help to increase bagel tone. If you like to sing, sing out loud, do so in the car if you're driving to work, not many people are these days, but, um, or sing along, you know, find a reason to sing, um, but sing out loud, let there be a vibration. Um, you can also chant. Um, if, if you have a practice of yoga, oftentimes there'll be some chanting involved or some, depending on the yoga practice, but um, you can also Google that. You Google, you know, chanting, um, and you don't even have to chant something. You could just chant the word om or actually make up your own words. See, the cool thing is, is it doesn't really matter what, it's just that you're stimulating your vocal cord. Um, and so those to me are the simplest and most easy ways. There are other very um, coordinated exercises that involve like where you place your eyes, how you place your head. Again, the neck and the, the face are very, very um, central to uh, the vagus nerve. But, um, and you can go, like I said, you can look on my YouTube, no, not YouTube, my Instagram for these, or again, a lot of people are teaching this stuff. So you can go and Google it as well. Um, I just want you to hear this message. There's stuff that you can do. It isn't hard and it isn't, it doesn't have a cost associated with it. So regardless of your resources, there's these things that you, all of us should be teaching our kids this mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. So, and if you have any questions at all, I am a real life person behind my Instagram <laughs> DM. I am slow to respond, but I do respond. So I, or my assistant, who's also lovely. So we will, we will point you to a resource that will help you if, if that is something that you're looking for. I love that you emphasized the accessibility of some yeah. of this. And there is a way to be creative about it, to even make it fun, mm -hmm. to even have it be a social thing. I'm a big fan personally of the singing dance parties in our kitchen so mm -hmm. so really and but that might not be your thing but the point is there are so many different ways to practice this that don't cost anything and don't even necessarily need to cost a lot of time either because I know that's something that is not a, a high luxury for many people these days right. and so definitely want to echo your words that there is a lot available to you even with limited time and, and limited resources. Absolutely. And that's a big part. I, I, I see this in your work too. Um, if you go to my website or if you look on my stuff, like I have a ton of free resources for that reason. It, it kind of goes back to the statement I made earlier about, I think it was by design that we were taught to cut off from the body. Mm. Your body can find its way back to a regulated state. You have that inherent ability. We just, for whatever reason, have lost our way and we, we've created a lot of, um, a world where we're very out of touch with that. But um, we've known this for years. It's uh, what I love about my teachers in somatic work is they're very clear to say that like, yeah, okay, somatic work and all the people who teach somatic therapy, like this is new to the Western world, but this mm -hmm. is not new. Mm -hmm. This is not new to right. indigenous cultures. This is mm -hmm. not new. This stuff has been practiced for years. We are just finding our way back. Mm -hmm. And so um, they give that credit where credit's due because we've known this stuff, dancing, singing, chanting, yep. drumming. It's been part of our culture at large in the world for years until, you know, recently and and so well relatively recently in, in the term of like the span of the world itself but um all of that to say dance parties all, all of those things they they're what you instinctively want to do anyway mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. trust your body mm. just i don't know i know that's overly simplified but i want to sneak it in there anyway yet so wise and <laughs> right. important like so. most things right, right. Most, right. most wisdom is super super simple <laughs> Well, I think that's a beautiful note to end on, but Becca, I want to make sure that people know how to find you. So I'd love for you to share how people can connect with you further. Absolutely. So my website is my name. It's Rebecca Clegg, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-C-L-E-G-G.com. Um, and I have all of my sort of everything that I'm, I'm doing in the world is on there, but I do have a book. Um, we're releasing the Audible track um, at the 2022. Um, and of course, you can follow me on Instagram, where I tend to do a lot of stuff these days. So that that is always a good place to find me as well. So 
Thank you so much. So I will include all of that information in the episode notes as well. Definitely encourage anyone who's listening, who feels compelled to learn more to follow Becca, check out her resources. She really is such a gem and you're so welcome. And so again, thank you for being here today and for sharing so generously about your experiences and the kinds of things that are on your mind, heart, body gestalt these days. It's really been such a pleasure and treat to talk to you. And I, I really thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others or leave a review. And if you'd like to reach out or connect more, I would love to hear from you. So please check out my website or follow me on Instagram. To find me on Instagram, you can search for Dr. Foynes. That is D-R-F-O-Y-N-E-S. And to learn more about me and connect via my website, you can visit melissafoynes.com. That is M-E-L-I-S-S-A-F-O-Y-N-E-S.com. Thank you so much for carving out the time to join me this week and I look forward to having you join next.